Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. Today, our topic discusses practice startup and feasibility, along with giving some insights to new providers contemplating either starting your own practice or going to work for and joining an existing practice. Tackling these topics and more with me today is NSCHBC member and certified healthcare business consultant, Valora Gerganius, partner and senior management consultant with Doctors Management. Valora serves clients in all medical specialties and provides services related to operations, workflow optimization, compliance, IT, accounting, marketing, and strategic planning. Along with a team of CPAs, lawyers, and MBAs within Doctors Management, Valora also advises physicians and hospitals on practice valuation, startup, contract negotiation, and transition of ownership. Valora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Terry. I'm delighted to be here. Your wealth of knowledge. And what's great is that I'm a consultant, but I'm a coder, biller, auditor, manage, practice management, but I don't have your lane, if we should say so. This will be a great back and forth going, you know, into what we we bring to the table on on different things when it comes to um, really startups and what doctors are looking for. So question to you, and I, I know that you probably get this question right away when we talk about practice startup and feasibility. There's a lot of physicians out there that they just don't know, they don't have direction, especially when they come out of, of school, they don't know if they should just start their own practice, you know, buy an existing practice or join an already put together practice, or maybe work for a place like Kaiser or an ACO or something like that. And so practice startup services, as you know, because I know you assist physicians in, in that startup, can be very tedious and to get it off the ground and off us to a, a solid and firm foundation start, so what would you first say to maybe a young general practice, family practice physician, just out of medical school, they want your advice when it comes to jumping in, they're ready to go, what would, what would you say that they should do? To be honest with you, Terry, I have very few um, family practice or general practitioners coming directly out of training and seeking entrepreneurship. Um, what we find for pragmatic reasons is that many of them have educational debt. They may have started a family during their training. They often need a paycheck <laughs> to begin. And um, what we will do is give them some recommendations on strategies for them to get established in a community. Um, if they are interested and they've already got a community selected, um, I'd like to first drill down with a feasibility analysis. If they've determined that they are uh, committed to starting their own practice, we'd, we'd start with a feasibility study. With that, we will look at the population, um, the, the profile and demographics in that community, um, the ratio of current providers in their specialty, if, if it's general medicine or family practice or internal medicine, um, we'll see what the ratio of population to providers that are already established in that community. We'll look at the insurance profile, um, how many are on government funded insurance versus commercial insurance. 
uh, and we can get that um, readily available through uh, many resources in our industry. Um, we'd want to look at income and, and household, age distribution of the individuals that would likely be this physician's patients. Um, and then we'll start looking at the economics of it. Um, how long would it likely take the physician to build up a sufficient patient base in order to break even? So we will start with the uh, a business uh, pro forma and analyze how many patients he or she would need to see uh, in order to pay their overhead. Um, with that, we would start with assessing real estate values, seeing what real estate would rent for in that area and how much it's going to cost to do a build out, purchase equipment and, and supplies, uh, and, and really plan to operate successfully in that market. Um, but that would come later, of course, once we've made the decision that this is a go or a no-go. So we, we start with that feasibility analysis, see if, if there is an opportunity for them to make a living and be successful. Um, also evaluate whether or not they'd need to add ancillary services, laboratory, or any other kinds of ways to enhance patient care. Uh, and may also be additional revenue opportunities for them. Um, what I would often suggest for someone coming straight out of training is that they do try and work for a couple of years with an established private practice if that opportunity exists in the community. The reason that that makes sense for most, you know, right out of training they don't really know how to practice yet. Uh, of course, they've been in, in medical school and doing rotations and all, but they don't really know how to run a practice, how to staff, how to design the flow of, of um, patient movements through the practice, how to pay payroll and, and all of those things. If they've had a little bit of full-time experience, at least getting a feel for how they practice, how they manage a patient encounter, how they do their documentation, what equipment and resources do they need uh, to make themselves more productive and more efficient when it comes to patient care? How do they communicate with their patients? If they've gotten their, their sea legs, they now know how they can apply it in their own setting. So I, I would recommend that they do a couple of those, um, pursue uh, maybe one to two years, ideally at a private practice to start, get their bearings, develop referral relationships, develop their own patient base themselves, and understand how they'd like to practice, then they can, can create their own. That sounds great. Yeah, it's interesting because you brought up so many points um, in that rundown, and, and I kind of want to go over a couple of them. So I agree with you. I think that getting their feet wet in patient care, which is, is really their focus coming out of, of medical school versus entrepreneurship is probably a good place to, to start. Um, we are, I was just having a conversation with my daughter recently who's 
26 years old, a middle school teacher, and she's going into her, she's in her second year now. They just started up um, again, and she lives in uh, Phoenix. And they, they tagged her to already be head of the de English department. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome, Summer. But um, you've had one year, and it was hybrid, meaning half online because of COVID and half in person and all that. I said, don't you think you need some experience before you are the head of a department? And, you know, and she's like, oh, mama, this is going to be so cool. And I can already see the wheel spinning of dictatorship. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like, and I'm looking at being in charge versus having the experience, you know, in the managerial setting, which you have to have and dealing with parents and, you know, and other staff members who may have 20 years on you. Um, and so it just brings me back to, to this topic uh, and our listeners, you know, if there's physicians out there that, again, are either just out of, of school or even trying to make a transition from, you know, an early practice situation, getting your feet wet. I think Valora has a really good point uh, in the clinical side first and how and maybe another practice runs. Um, mm -hmm. Getting a paycheck, that's always a positive. <laughs> when, uh, my my uh, niece is just out of um, dental school and she's got over 350,000 in, in debt. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, is that seriously what a physician has in debt? And she goes, oh yeah, that's nothing. And I was like, wow, I can't even imagine that amount of money, you know, as far as debt. But um, if it's not tied to a house or something. Right. But um, she was saying, she goes, yeah, I had to, I had to get a paycheck. So I, I joined an existing practice and, and then I'm learning, she goes, actually, I'm learning how I don't want to run my practice by some of the things I'm seeing. And, uh, and so she's, she's kind of going from there. That is critical. And it's so valuable. Um, I have specialists, for example, OBGYN who has gotten a position, I think she was with a hospital group prior, and now she's going and pursuing entrepreneurship. But she really discovered that her passion was more women's wellness and more naturopathic approaches. And the traditional approaches that the hospital expectations of her practicing and deploying really weren't compatible with her own philosophy of, of medicine. Um, she was, you know, of course, pressed to achieve RVUs and, and productivity in the hospital setting, as opposed to really spending a, a good deal of time um, working with patients on their hormonal balance, their um, mental health, uh, doing yoga and nutrition and all of those other things regarding the whole individual. So, Understanding yourself is something important before you start your own practice, because you might refine what your goals are by having a setting um, that's very different than what you really feel that you're drawn to do. So I think that real world experience is, is very helpful in refining kind of your, your model that you're going to, to implement on your own and even uh, the strategies that you're going to deploy while you're there. I agree. I have a question for you now. When you said uh, if there's a possibility to, you know, work with an established private practice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's always physicians just are always uh, practices are always looking for to add another physician or to add a, a mid-level or a specialist or something like that. But my question is, what do you think about 
them, um, them meaning in the general uh, physician population, starting with a, and I put out their Kaiser, you know, a place where they've only worked nine to five, is that realistic? Or is it better to work at a private practice where you have to take on call, where you, you basically, if your plan is to be an entrepreneur and, and have your own practice someday, you, you really need to know the, the rigors, I guess, of, mm -hmm. of what that entails. What would you recommend on that front? Absolutely the latter. Um, the Kaiser approach is stable. Obviously, it's predictable. Call is, is very manageable. However, very little discretion on the part of the physician. And more than anything, that's usually the complaint that physicians have. They can't control which types of patients they see. The volume of patients that they see is usually very high. Um, the amount of call that they may have to take may, you know, is, is dictated to them, um, whether they can add a mid-level provider or ancillary services or anything like that is not in the realm of their control whatsoever. Um, they may even have a non-compete. So if they ever aspire to start their own um, practice in the region, they have a geographic limitation, or sometimes it's based on where there are facilities associated with that organization. And you cannot locate within X number of miles of a Kaiser-owned facility or a hospital-owned facility. So it's very restrictive. And that minimizes how much benefit you could get that would transfer into your private practice, meaning those referral relationships are no longer there because you're not in that network any longer. And likely you won't be able to take your patients with you. Um, patients have the freedom to choose to come with you if they choose to, but you have a non-solicitation uh, provision. So any opportunity that you pursue, it's important to make sure you read the fine print of the employment agreement to make sure your options are your own uh, should you ever part ways with that organization. And especially if your intention is to stay in a, gen a geographic locale. And those, and that's actually, gosh, you brought up some really good points as far as if you're trying to get a referral-based practice going, it wouldn't work if you were trying to work at a, you know, at the model of, of what Kaiser does. And this, this isn't to discourage Kaiser. It depends on your lifestyle yeah. choice. Like you said, you know, if you want to mm -hmm. stability and you want to work in a, in a, you know, an eight to five, and that's where you want to stay. And I would say five to 10 years, mm -hmm. then that may be for you. But if you truly want to be independent physician and break out and, and do that, I think that uh, you, you've made some really valid points as far as the limitations on that kind of a setup. Mm -hmm. I know um, I have some clients that are uh, Kaiser-oriented and also um, St. Joseph's and an HMO situation, and they um, they said, you know, we can't e we don't even have the flexibility or the autonomy to order tests that we want for mm -hmm. symptoms we see, we have to follow the bylaws. And I'm like, what does that mean? They said, so we have a patient, they gave me an example, that comes in with, you know, chronic fevers and um, what, what else did you say? And maybe some abdominal pain. He says, well, I want to, I want to do a colonoscopy because I think there could be a, a colon cancer situation. He said, but that's not in the bylaws. We first have to look for lupus and we have to look for three other things before we can go what our clinical judgment says. So when we get into these discussions, um, it's definitely interesting when we talk to the doctors, because I don't think they think about the non-compete and they think about 
um, I, I realize the paycheck's important, but you have to think about long term and what are you getting out of this practice to continue in your career as a physician. And so my next question, or kind of a leading into what we're talking about here, so what do you feel about when, let's say you do have a physician out, obviously in um, family practice, they tend to want to join a group so they can get, get some clin you know, clinical experience under their belt and, and that kind of thing. But I know specialists sometimes like to really jump in. And what I see just from my clients, and especially the new doctors that that uh, contact me for assistance is that they they enlist their family to help them with the administrative end of things so <laughs> we've got a wife at the front desk or we have a you know we have a husband running the the you know day-to-day -day, or we have you know the daughter's now a, a makeshift medical assistant <laughs> and all that and they haven't really hired the um knowledgeable staff they need. Right. Can you speak a little bit to that and, and how that could possibly be a problem in the long term? It can be. Um, I do see it probably in 50% of my um, client, my new startup clients. It may be that the spouse is involved. Um, I have several that are both physicians and they will be practicing together. Where it becomes an issue is, number one, you aren't getting the benefit of an experienced person. And that's really, really a deficiency, <laughs> clearly. If, um, if you're working with a medical assistant or a front desk person who has not done insurance eligibility and verifications or even um, booking the ASC and, and you know, handling um, the finances associated with the practice, posting payments and submitting charges, et cetera. That is the worst decision that you could ever make is to not have an experienced person in any of those types of capacities. And certainly when it comes to an MA, if that daughter or whoever does not have nursing experience, not a good choice. Um, so I think uh, they really appreciate having access to a, a healthcare business consultant if they've chosen that route, because we will be able to fill in some of those deficiencies uh, in, in just their own knowledge base. Um, they really wouldn't know much about credentialing or electronic medical records and, and doing things properly from an operations perspective. Um, they may not have any accounting experience and know how to keep the books for the practice, um, how to submit payroll and all of those things, um, what they need to be doing for medical liability, um, you know, mitigation. So it's, uh, it's important that everyone generally have the background. And if they don't, they really, it's critical that you engage a healthcare business consultant who can make sure that the practice is implementing best practices in terms of doing things in, in line with regulatory compliance and business sensibility. So um, our goal is to protect the practice and protect the provider and allow them to focus on great patient care and being a great boss, not so much about making sure that the the practice closes because it's not making enough money to pay its bills. Right. And I think it's funny that you mentioned 
you know, when you when you bring inexperience into a startup, what's really tough too is I, through the society. And so, you know, Valor and I are both uh, independent consultants, and that is what the NSCHBC has. We are um, healthcare business consultants, and and uh, that's you know kind of what we promote. But I had a, a practice contact me through that, and they said, you know, we need to just look at our deficiencies. Where where are inefficiencies? What you know? What do you see? Well, I noticed that there was a lot of young staff uh, answering the phone. And remember, our kids now don't know how to answer the phone. <laughs> they they they're text. They, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're on TikTok. They're on these social media platforms. They're using, you know, language that we probably have never heard of uh, mm -hmm. in their texting and slang. And I'm sitting there listening to the, you know, how they're answering the phone and, and relating to patients, which is a practice's first impression, you know, um, well, take away from the website. And it was, it's frightening, you know, just not real, you know, seeing staff that are just like, um, yeah, <laughs> or, you know, they answer the phone and, and not a caring and realizing that especially geriatric practices, got a high Medicare population, um, just really understanding what it means to be caring when you answer the phone and sympathetic and, and, you know, um, approachable, I guess is the best word, and uh, not acting like you're you're texting your your friend on, you know, when you're gonna go to the movies on Friday or something. And so it was it was definitely an eye opener to to some of the physicians. Um, one of the other things I had a practice, uh, I had physicians do when I was same practice, and it was uh, 40 physicians. So it was a huge, huge practice. I had them come and sit in the waiting room and they said, why did we do that? I go, so you can see what your patients are seeing. Have you ever sat in your waiting room? Mm -hmm. And a couple of the physicians kind of sat with me. I said, just sit with me there. We're going to go over some things and we'll be quiet, but I just want to sit there. They want, you, you need to wear street clothes. I don't want them to think you're the doctor there. And they're just like, okay, well, one of the doctors like, boy, our chairs are uncomfortable. I'm like, <laughs> yes, they are. And then one of the things that was noticed is a patient walked in with a cane and went to the front desk and had a cane and um, they were carrying s some of their information or something. And the front desk gal, without noticing that person had, a, you know, an implement or, or a little bit of trouble, handed them a clipboard handed them something they couldn't carry and they were clearly struggling, dropped it a couple times and did not come out from behind the desk to assist the patient. Okay. And I know. And I said, that's what your front desk does. I go on and it wasn't to, to, you know, kind of show the front desk was not doing their job. It was more to just let them see what patients are dealing with when they walk mm -hmm. in and is that what you want? So mm -hmm. it's, it's important that um, not just in, in startups, but when you, if, if you, even if you want to move, a practice from if you're an employee of a practice or you're a partner and you want to go to a different practice, really figure out what you want. You know, I'm talking to the listeners specifically, what, what is, how do you want to practice? You know, Valora mentioned clinically, but also administratively and mm -hmm. um, outwardly and what kind of staff do you, do you want and have in your office? And so really having a, a management consultant or having somebody that give you some of that direction is, is important. Um, one of the things that comes up a lot, I think physicians may miss, is starting a new practice. Oh my gosh, the time it takes, the time consuming and very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. But what do they need to prepare for mentally? And when when I say that, as far as obviously they went through medical school and you know they know the rigors of that. But what do you what would you um, what would you comment on as far as 
where where they need to get their mindset when it comes to to starting a practice if if that's where they're ready to do. I think it's a, a stretch for many physicians to envision being an employer. <laughs> they are really becoming a company and it's never something that they've ever experienced or were even trained for uh, throughout medical school or residency. Um, realizing they have to select their staff, they have to discipline them sometimes, um, maybe even terminate from time to time, make decisions about even um, how the practice will, will flow. Um, it's, that is a different mindset than and then and then the way they've always operated historically. So that's probably the biggest adjustment that physicians have is, oh my goodness, I am the boss here. Yeah, I'm so. in charge. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and they not only have to fig figure out how to make money, but to save money, right. but um, not not to the point where they don't have quality staff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and uh, I think you brought up a couple of things that I think is missed sometimes if you, they try to do it alone, and that is the feasibility information. Mm -hmm. You know, do you do you know what the patient to physician ratio is? Do you do you know your community as far as age distribution mm -hmm. and how you're going to practice? I don't think a lot of doctors would even think to think about that when they start mm -hmm. up. They're more about, well, do I like my parking lot and is this building, you know. Does this work for me as far as space? But really, there's more external things they really need to consider um, when they're starting up. Absolutely. And of course, from a regulatory perspective, many docs think that all they need to do is transfer their license to their new location, maybe get a tax ID and hang out their shingle. It's so much <laughs> more than that. Um, they definitely need to get their you know, CAQH updated, NPI, get a group NPI, get their credentialing underway. There's lots of work involved before you are ready to hang out your shingle. Credentialing being essential because if you're not in the networks that are prevalent in that community, you won't be able to treat any of those patients in network that have Blue Cross United Healthcare, even Medicare, if you haven't gone through the process of credentialing. So physicians are often um, surprised at how long that process actually takes. If you're in Florida, as an example, it could be up to eight months before you are in network with most of the major insurances. So allowing sufficient time for those things to happen and to be approved is essential. What I usually advise my clients to do is to continue to work. <laughs> Ideally, so they're continuing to make money and they can still pay their, you know, household bills while we're doing all of that, uh, just to make sure they don't miss too many paychecks while while the process uh, bears out. But That's I true. wouldn't recommend ever opening before uh, those things have been addressed. And, and I'm sure you get the question just like I do. I get all the time. Oh my gosh, it has to be at least two or three times a month. Well, our doctor isn't credentialed with this insurance company. Can we bill it incident to another doctor? And the answer is no, no. no. <laughs> you cannot. And I see a lot of practices trying to do that and you can't. And if you get caught doing that, it's not a good thing. <laughs> so yeah, you really have to make sure that credentialing process is there. You know, they have to really think about it and, you know, tell me if you agree with this. When I went out on my own, because some people don't realize this, but I started in nursing years ago and 
30 years ago to be exact. And I am, I, I was a nurse that couldn't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> and so That's a problem. <laughs> and, um, but I really liked the administrative end of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so moved into that, went back to being a trauma nurse for a short time only because I was asked to, and I was like, this is not for me. But until I had, you know, my, my business in place, and I know now they call it a side hustle. It definitely isn't that for us, but mm -hmm. until you have your, you know, your own business in place, you still have to have health insurance. You still need to be able to pay your bills. And so yeah. to do that, you have to keep your, keep your day job as they say, mm -hmm. and then um, you can transition. But one of the things, uh, you know, and I agree that uh, in the startup, there's so much administrative things that you need to do. And so to our listeners, uh, make sure that you do find that that trusted consultant. And Valora, let me ask you a question. Do you do that that uh, contracting and, um, you know, credentialing and all that? Do you is that something that's part of, of in your wheelhouse? It sure is. Um, we do have a team at doctors management of five that only do provider credentialing. Um, awesome. My role would be working with the physician from the beginning to define the, the concept and the objectives of the practice, do that feasibility analysis, and also work on projections and bank loan applications with the doctor. Oh, I, I walk yeah. with them hand in hand all the way through the bank loan application process, which is essential. Because oh, you do fantastic. want to secure your financing as early through the process as possible. And it's important to note that healthcare business consulting fees, like accounting fees, legal fees, are accepted business expenses that can be covered by that business loan. So don't feel that you're having to pay any of those expenses out of pocket exclusively. They can actually be paid out of the business loan, and it's usually included always included in our projections when we're estimating how much money the doctor needs and you know what will be paid out of that. And just for FYI, um, we will always allow for the cost to build out the space, the equipment, the um, starting inventory of medical supplies and medications that they might need, cost of their computers, um, telephone system, internet security, um, their EHR, all of those things will be included in that startup budget. So we ask for the bank for sufficient funds to be able to complete the whole project. And our usual timeline is nine to 12 months from engagement of the consultant till opening day. Generally, nine months is the minimum. We usually say uh, that the doctor should prepare for 12 months, and that would have them in-network contracted, ideally staffed, equipped, and ready to see patients. This reminds me, right now my um, daughter is getting married next March, and it reminds me what they told us about buying a wedding dress. <laughs> Start with the <laughs> 9 to 12 months in advance, mm -hmm. otherwise you're not going to have it in time. <laughs> right. So, right. This, this reminds me of that. It's just kind of funny when you gave the, the timeline. I was like, oh, I've heard this someplace before. Yeah. So yes, <laughs> consider yourself a bride here. When do you need to start planning for your, your wedding or your opening? And and that's probably a good way to go. And one thing that, that also, you know, Valora brought up, and that's why 
I asked her, you know, we all have our strengths and what we do as healthcare business consultants. And I do not do contracting or credentialing anymore. I did a long time ago, but now I'm in coding, billing, reimbursement, auditing, and education. So we all have our strengths and, and definitely know um, what, or at least in, uh, inquire about what your uh, consultant does if you decide to go that way, because it can really help you to not only streamline your processes, but it can give you um, a sense of you don't have to deal with the headaches. And so, you know, that's what we're here for. Well, this has been fantastic and very enlightening. And, you know, I, I want to say first to our listeners that have decided to start their own practice or to at least start the journey on that. Congratulations on taking the first steps in, in that decision. Uh, we would like to thank Valora for being on our podcast today and her amazing insights into practice startup and physician strategic planning for their future. Um, also, you can reach Valora at NICHBC.org. Uh, you can go to find a consultant and type in her first name and her information will pop up for you. Or um, Valora, where can they reach you at Doctors Management? At Doctors Management, our number is 800. Well, I'll give you the, the local. It's 865-531-0176. Or our website is doctors-management.com. Perfect. And you can find her on uh, the consultant page. I, I She's a wealth of information and uh, right there is one of the senior consultants. So again, thank you again to Valora for today. And we hope you enjoyed listening to the information on the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Again, I'm your host, Terry Fletcher, and we look forward to talking to you next month. Thank you for listening and make it a great day. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.